welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I am your host, Mark Bubbs. This is episode number 34, and I am very excited to have on the show today Dr. Jose Antonio, an absolute leader and pioneer in the field of sports nutrition and supplementation, and he's going to talk all things supplementation for performance. We will dive into things like creatine, who can benefit, what is the ideal dose and timing, how about creatine for younger athletes in high school, and of course, some of the research around brain benefits in creatine. Dr. Joe also dives into things like beta alanine and beetroot juice for middle and long distance athletes who can benefit, who will not, as well as the controversial carbohydrates for performance, or perhaps not so controversial, depending on what side of the fence you stand on, as well as one of his favorites, and of course, one of mine, caffeine supplementation, some surprising areas where he feels like some of the benefits come. Uh, So really great stuff, as usual, from, from Dr. Joe and the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out my layups and my performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And I hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Jose Antonio, PhD, is the CEO and co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He is a fellow of the ISSN, American College of Sports Medicine, and National Strength and Conditioning Association. He was the 2005 recipient of the NSCA Research Achievement Award and the 2009 NSCA Educator of the Year. He gives an occasional talk, writes a bit, and can read your mind, but only after (laughs) consuming copious amounts of coffee. Dr. Antonio is an assistant professor of exercise and sports science at Nova Southeastern University in beautiful South Florida and avid paddler. Joe, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, you mentioned I'm an avid paddler. I was actually just paddling for about three hours uh, this morning. Um, the weather here is gorgeous. Um, my tan, I got. I bet you I got a lot of vitamin D because I'm constantly exposed to the sun. So it's going to say things are awesome down here. <laughs> South Florida, circadian rhythms and vitamin D. Check those right. Uh, check those boxes, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, before we jump into you know all things supplementation for performance, can you tell folks a little bit about how you got into sports science? Yeah, it was. Um, I think when uh, I mean I, I'm fairly old. I mean, people uh, <laughs> they don't realize I've been around a long time. But I I actually did my undergraduate degree back in the 1980s when uh, there really wasn't much exercise science. In fact, exercise science programs were rather rare. And I remember, you know, watching the Olympics as a kid, and really what fascinated me most were two groups of athletes. One, I was fascinated by the sprinters, um, just the speed. I mean, when you see these guys run 100 meters in 10 seconds or less, like, wow, that's really fast. And then my, uh, sort of on a, a different tact, I was a big fan of Bruce Lee. And I remember watching Bruce Lee movies as a kid, you know, back in the 70s. And I'm like, wow. Again, I was fascinated by his speed. So I thought, wow, how, how do people do that? How do they move that fast? And so I always had an interest in athletics, per se. I've, I've always been myself quite the mediocre athlete. I, I always say, hey, I love to work out, but, you know, I suck when it comes to being actually an athlete. Um, but I loved watching it. And, and the idea of studying it really came to me later on as an undergrad when when I started to see exercise science programs open up in the United States. And oddly enough, my interest was, was in sports nutrition, but I realized there really wasn't any sports nutrition. 
at all. I mean, as far as a field of study, and this is back in the 80s. So I studied exercise physiology. I got my master's degree at Kent State University. Eventually, I got a PhD in muscle physiology. This was uh, in the early 90s. And even then, we're talking the early 90s, sports nutrition as a field didn't exist. I mean, there were smatterings of it. I mean, pretty much everything was negative. Nothing worked. Vitamins were useless. I mean, that was yeah. basically, you know, that was basically the zeitgeist of the time. You know, supplements were a waste of time. And so I thought, you know, there's something there. And in fact, the fact that there's no data on supplements should be the reason you study supplements. I mean, because it's a wide open field. And then back in the... Um, I was living in Dallas doing my postdoc uh, back in the early 90s, and I read this paper on something called creatine. And I was a regular guest on a radio show, and I, I brought this paper, and I said, hey, there's this study out on something called creatine, and it seems to help performance. It increases lean body mass, whatever, you know. And <laughs> I remember the host of the show, Larry North, he's like, wow, is that real? I mean, are there actually supplements that promote that are scientifically based and actually have an ergogenic effect. And so, as you know, creatine is now the most studied supplement in history. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, that, so that's the early 90s. And then I, I graduated. And even in, up until about the year 2000, there really wasn't sports nutrition. And, in fact, whatever sports nutrition existed was people making fun of sports nutrition. <laughs> it was really kind of weird. It's, I remember going to American College of Sports Medicine meetings where – you know, the, the general consensus amongst the so-called experts was, ah, it's a waste of time, all you got to do is eat, work out, blah, 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 blah. And I just knew that wasn't right. And the reason I knew it wasn't right, it wasn't based on really any hard evidence. It was based on watching people. And I know that's, you know, you can't use anecdotes to replace data, but you got to start somewhere. So I remember watching, particularly bodybuilders, because I, I, I was a big part of that industry for a long time. Bodybuilders would typically eat a lot, eat a lot of protein, work out like crazy, and do a lot of things that were, how would I say it, they were criticized by the typical experts of the time, scientists, doctors, and whatnot. And I thought, obviously, they're doing something right. Something is working. Um, and now you fast forward to now, we do know that you should eat more protein if you work out. Uh, it, it, it increases you know, a signaling pathway, the mTOR pathway. Um, people who work out need more protein than people who don't work out. So it's interesting, the science has basically verified, at least in the bodybuilding circles, what they've been doing for like 80 years. And it's not just that. There's a lot of other areas where science has verified what athletes have done. But on the flip side, there are things scientists have found that are helping athletes. I mean, beta alanine, that's one. Nutrient timing, that's another. Beetroot juice. I mean, there's a whole slew of things, the use of citrulline, that have, that have come from the science side and now are helping the athletic side. So it's a nice little marriage of science and industry or science and athletics. And right now, here's the cool part. We're in the year 2017, and now you cannot find a university that does not have sports nutrition. Everything, Every major university now has a sports nutrition, either undergrad or graduate uh, a class in, and or a program. And so literally in the last two decades, even less than two, two decades, sports nutrition as a field of study has gone from, eh, it's a waste of time to, oh, my God, we got to have sports nutrition. So in a way, you know, I'd like to think that I was part of that since myself and my uh, friend and colleague Jeff Stout, he's at University of Central Florida, we were really two of the first scientists to branch out and embrace supplements way before anyone else would because I think in academics they tend to be very, I guess, not so much conservative, just slow yep. to accept new things. 
And I'm like, screw it. I mean, I think supplements work. There's something there. I want to do it, and I don't really care what anyone thinks. So That's phenomenal. Um, <laughs> it's amazing to see things come full circle like that. Now, if we circle back to even just creatine, you guys recently at ISSN recently updated the position stand on the efficacy and safety of creatine supplementation. To get everyone on the same page, how can creatine really benefit athletes? Well, it's interesting. You know, the data on creatine is, is robust. I mean, not only does creatine help strength power athletes, but it also helps, and people aren't aware of this, there's data to show that it helps endurance athletes as well. But there's a caveat there. If you're an endurance athlete, let's say a runner, where body weight is an issue, you're like, okay, I don't know if I want it because the extra body weight might, might impair how well I run. But in endurance sports where body weight is supported, swimming, rowing, cycling, things like that, the water sports, creatine actually can help quite a bit. So in, in both strength power and endurance events, Creatine is, you know, by far one of the most effective supplements, and it certainly doesn't have any side effects. And and the ironic part is, it's probably not probably it is the most studied supplement. Maybe caffeine is sort of neck and neck with it. Yet it's the supplement that still gets the most criticism. Um, you know, uh, parents of teenage athletes are like, "Well, I don't know if my son should take creatine." I'm like, "Well." It's in meat. I mean, are you telling your son not to eat a lot of fish? Because fish has a lot of creatine. So there's just a lot of, you know, nutty thinking that goes on when it comes to supplements. It's just, it's just weird to me. And especially as it relates to performance. I mean, you know, often having, obviously, a food-first approach is great. But as I've seen you even recently post, you know, there's certain things, i.e. creatine, where, you know, you could eat boatloads of herring, but you just can't get the same uh, threshold as you can with supplementation, correct? Yeah, and, and I think that's... Uh, it's funny, that, and I know what post you're referring to, the whole, uh, um, and even my own colleagues, I, I'd say 90% of my colleagues, they're always, you know, blah, blahing about um, foods first, foods first. And in a way, it's a bit of a straw man because, of course, you have to eat food because you got to be alive. Yeah, of course, food. However, however, I don't, what I try to do is I don't put a hierarchy to like foods and supplements, meaning, well, first clean up your diet or eat well and then take supplements. I say do everything that works and do it simultaneously because there's no reason that to have a hierarchy. There's no reason to have an order of events. It's sort of like, you know, I brought this up to a strength coach. I said, you know, for a football player, you know, and, and the NFL, is it more important that they do sprint training or weight training? Well, he's like, well, they should do both. Exactly. Now, if you're a strength power athlete, is it more important that you eat well or take creatine? Well, why can't you do both? Why are they mutually exclusive? Why do you have to do one before doing the other? And what's interesting is if you look at the data on creatine, and actually the data on, on pretty much 99% of supplements out there, they do not control for diet. Meaning, if it works, it works regardless of whether your diet's great or your diet sucks. Um, all the studies on creatine, they're not controlling for diet. They're just giving them creatine. So the idea that you have to eat well first before taking a supplement has no basis in science. The problem is, it sounds good to everyone. They're like, oh, yeah, well, let's clean up our diet first. We've got to fix your diet first. And I'm always thinking, wait a minute, diet is the hardest thing to change, much harder than training, much harder than taking a supplement. Why do you think doing the most difficult thing first should be the first thing you do? Isn't it you sort of start easy first and then go difficult? Or just do it at the same time. I mean, it's just bizarre. The thinking is bizarre. Absolutely. That low-hanging fruit has got to come first, right? Now, what is the ideal dose of, of creatine? Is it the five grams daily? Is the loading protocol superior? What's the latest update there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I tell people if they, um, let's say they have an athletic event coming up and they're not taking creatine, I'd say in that case, load, load up on it, well, 20 to 30 grams for about a week, you'll be fine. 
if you're constantly taking it, like if you're someone who's just out of habit, you take whatever, your pills or your powder, you know, I'd say even three grams might be good enough for most people, but, you know, five grams is a good rule of thumb. And if you're larger athletes, we talk, you know, rugby players, football players, is, is there potentially a higher maintenance load that they would need? No, I think, you know, I think five grams seems to work. As long as you're on it chronically, I think five grams, um, that should work for 99.9% .9 of the population. Fantastic. And when taking creatine, what do you think? Taking it alone in combination with, you know, carbohydrates, protein, and that post-workout shake? Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of that is personal preference. Some people actually like taking capsules, which... I mean, that's a lot of capsules, but to them, it, it gives them the way of exactly quantifying what they take. But to me, a perhaps more convenient method is mix it with your protein shake and take it post-workout because it's a convenient time, you're semi-hungry, and it mixes well with your protein shake. So that way you get your protein, get your creatine, get your fluid, uh, get your fat if you add you know, fat to it, peanut butter or whatever. Um, to me, it's, it's choose the behavior that you're most apt to repeat. And if it's post-workout, repeat it. If it's first thing in the morning while you're drinking coffee, do it then. So but just stick to that behavior. I like that really practical, definitely great place to, great place to throw that in. Now, yeah. in terms of the length of time for athletes, short-term, long-term supplementation, I mean, do you like people cycling in and off of it? Can people stay on this for you know, potentially years at a time? Yeah, I mean, uh, is there a scientific basis for cycling off it? To me, it's more an issue, you know, I guess you could look at it this way. Do people cycle on and off protein? Well, no, not really. And protein-containing foods are the ones that have creatine. So the, the notion of cycling on and off it for physiological reasons, I don't see why you would do that. To me, working with athletes who take it, the reason they cycle off it is they're just tired of taking supplements. It's, it, I liken it to, uh, you know, you have an off-season, a competitive season, then your off-season. And I liken it to, you know what, you're, you're not going to train as hard. Uh, maybe you just want to take sort of a mental break from the, uh, the, the regimen that you're doing in terms of taking your supplements, eating well, training like crazy. I mean, a lot of that is, uh, you know, I think the mental break is good. I mean, I go through, it's weird, I go through phases, I have my cabinet of pills and powders and whatnot. And then like around Christmas time when I don't feel like doing anything, I, might, I mean, I still work out, but I'm like, oh, I, I think I'll sort of slack on this for a while just because I just don't feel like doing it. And I think that mental break helps. 100%. Yeah, I think it's just good to give athletes and regular folk, as you mentioned, just a bit of a break from, from the regime. Um, and now there's some cool benefits here in terms of longevity as well and, and creatine as a nootropic in terms of you know, focus, concentration. Um, can you comment on any uh, new research there? Yeah, you know, uh, I, in terms of uh, some of the effects, uh, I know we, there's some older data already. Uh, it particularly helps uh, people who are vegetarian or vegan because they don't get much creatine, but it certainly helps memory and cognition in people who tend to be a little bit deficient. Now, if you're a heavy meat eater, it might not help you as much. Um, also, the other area in terms of brain function is the idea that it might help those who uh, might have uh, brain injury. So if you're in a sport where you know there's potential brain injury like football, boxing, mixed martial arts, even soccer, believe it or not, if you use your head if you do headers in soccer, it actually could damage your brain. Um, Taking creatine, I think, has a role there. And, and I, I tell a lot of athletes that even if you don't care about the muscle stuff, you don't want to gain weight and all that, you like the weight you're at, how about take it just to protect your head, your brain? I mean, that to me is reason enough. I mean, I remember uh, reading this, uh, this is, there was this, this an older study looking at kids ages like these were infants up to 18 years of age. 
who presented to an emergency room with traumatic brain injury. And let's say half of them actually were administered creatine. And the group that was administered creatine recovered much more quickly from traumatic brain injury than those that were not. So to me, that's compelling. I mean, I, I would think most people value their brains over their biceps. Although if you go to Instagram, you'd never know that. They value <laughs> to tell. <laughs> so, but I mean, protect your brain for Christ's sake. That's what I tell people. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to what you said about the you know kids in high school and their parents being worried about this being a negative. When in fact, it's you know the, the biggest thing in terms of head injuries, especially up here in Canada with ice hockey, is that it's a huge deal. So it's a you know the yeah. added protective side benefit. It seems just like a win-win, right? Exactly, exactly. Yet it's the one that parents are the most skeptical of. They're like, I'm not going to have my son on creatine. It's it's gonna, his kidneys will fail, and he's going to get muscle cramps while he's hitting the puck. I'm like, so, so I have to I have to ask this. I know the answer already, but how about safety for all the docs and everybody else listening? Any concerns around safety for the creatine supplementation? You know, I, well, the quick answer to that is no. I mean, there's no out of the three or four hundred studies we, we're talking double blind placebo controlled trials. There are no side effects to creatine other than if you want to call gaining weight a side effect, which oddly enough is an effect most people want. Um, I've been taking creatine fairly regularly for the past, let's see, what year are we, 2017? Over 20 years, which is, holy crap, I've been taking it a long time. Uh, <laughs> so, and I'm fine. Uh, kidneys are working. I don't have muscle cramps. Um, I think my brain's still working, so that's the most important thing. But, uh, that's but no really side good news. <laughs> awesome. If we shift gears to another one that you mentioned there, beta-alanine, what, uh, how can beta-alanine also help to support athletic performance? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a big fan of beta-alanine. I think for sports, you know, the World Track and Field Championships were just in, in London this past week, um, week and a half. And this, the events that beta-alanine would help the most would probably range from the 400, you know, up until I, maybe the 15. I mean, the 400, 800, 1500. Those events where you produce a lot of, uh, of lactate, of hydrogen ions, because you, know, you got to buffer the, the, the protons. Um, Beta-alanine, because it helps form carnosine and skeletal muscle, acts as a nice buffer. Um, so it certainly would be worthwhile for those athletes to, to take it. Um, there are, you know, although the caveat is there are a group of athletes where it doesn't do anything, and those are particularly the, um, the ones that are involved in power events, uh, the javelin, the discus, the hammer, shot put, well, long jump, triple jump, high jump. I mean, those sports that rely primarily on explosive power uh, from the phosphagen energy system or the ATP PCR energy system, uh, beta alanine probably won't do anything. Um, so, in that small subset of events where you produce a ton of lactate and hydrogen ions, I think beta alanine certainly has a role. And, and and also, there's a lot of team sports, you know, rugby, American football, soccer. I mean, these kinds of sports that are start-stop sprint type sports. I think beta alanine can help quite a bit. And uh, and again. This is what's cool about beta alanine. Okay, you need to you take about a four to six gram dose for you know a month or two, give or take. The nice thing about beta alanine is you can actually go off it for a while, and it doesn't leave your system as quickly as creatine. So you could literally go off it cold turkey for a month, go back on it, and you probably have not diminished much at all. So that's the nice thing about it. You actually can cycle off it and not really get any 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 drop in the effects of it. Wow, that's a really nice added uh, benefit there. And what about any side effects in terms of um, beta-alanine supplementation? Anything that people should uh, keep their mind out for? Yeah, no, you know, nothing other than <laughs> it's one of the pins and needles, as you know. If you take it, the paresthesia, you get 
you know, I get it in my fingers. I get a little bit in my face. It lasts like five to 10 minutes. Then it goes away. It's funny. You ask people, I'd say half actually like it. They're like, oh, wow. I, now I know it's beta alanine. The other half are like, oh, God, it annoys me. But I put up with it for five to 10 minutes uh, and it goes away. There are ways around it. There are timed release, or I think sustained release beta alanine capsules where it's because it's a slow release, you don't actually get the paresthesia. Um, so there are ways around it. Um, you know, if you're not bothered by it, then it really doesn't matter. You take your beta alanine, you get pins and needles in your fingers, and then it goes away. And time release just as good as the uh, taking the full dose? Yeah, because as long as you get that, I think roughly, as long as you attain a total dose of about 170 grams over X number of months or days, you'll get an ergogenic effect from it. So, um, so yeah, just as long as you hit that total dose, you'll be fine. Awesome. And another one in terms of these endurance sports, uh, obviously beetroot juice that you mentioned. Can you talk to us about beetroot juice and how that's impacting performance? Yeah, there's, you know, there's some cool data on beetroot juice showing that, um, you know, like, for instance, uh, running economy or cycling economy improves, meaning you don't use as much, as much oxygen um, at a certain workload, which is cool, I mean, particularly for endurance events. Now, I don't know about you, and I love the data on beetroot juice, but I have tried, I don't know how many products, and they all taste awful. I cannot get it past my tongue. It's, it's, I, remember, I remember I had a friend of mine, he's like, hey, you should try these shots, these beet shots. I don't know what they were called. I was like, I'll try anything now. And he's like, oh, yeah, just down it, just down it really fast. And, and it looks like blood. It, I mean, you see this bright red, looks like blood. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So I went home. I'm like, hey, maybe I'll, I'll just do the shot like I'm doing a tequila shot or something. And I swear to God, when that thing first hit my tongue, I, I just wanted to gag. I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. And I just spit it out. I can't drink it. And that's the problem. I'm like, why does this stuff have to taste so bad? I mean, can they make something that's semi-bad, not grotesquely bad? Because normally it's like, what, 500 mils, a full pint that you really need to get in to get that benefit, right? Yeah, and I don't know. Some people, I guess, they just close their nose and they drink it and they're fine. But it's just, yeah, that stuff's nasty. It's sort of, you know what it reminds me of? Of the old protein powders back in the 1970s where bodybuilders said, well, it's got to taste like crap for it to work. And I'm like, yeah, well, this does taste like crap. <laughs> <laughs> it ticks that box. <laughs> and what about any research? I've seen uh, some stuff saying that um, perhaps the elite um, cyclists won't get the benefit as just your, your, you know, your average or recreational athlete from taking a beetroot juice. Yeah, well, I think the I think the challenge for most elite athletes is they they have such a narrow window that they can they can improve that supplements in general um, may not help them as much unless they don't take any supplements at all. So I think when you're at that level, I mean, you're looking for such minor increments and improvement um, that you'll do anything. I mean, particularly if you make money, you know, as an athlete. If you don't make money as an athlete, then it really doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, it's 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 being at that level of fitness that is really the challenging part. Awesome, great insights. Well, how about if we shift gears here to beta hydroxy betyl methylbutyrate or HMB? Can you tell folks exactly <laughs> what HMB is and how it can help uh, those who want to upgrade their performance? Yeah, HMB, uh, as we describe it, is is a downstream metabolite to the amino acid leucine. So, um, leucine, as you know, is is an essential amino acid, and HMB. Uh, I mean, there's a bit of controversy with HMB, and I, I, let me sort of—I'll try to sort of massage it so that it's somewhat palatable to your to your audience. I think when you look at all the data, HMB works under the following circumstances: one, you're either untrained or you're training like crazy, meaning you're beating the hell out of your body. 
Um, roughly a dose of three, four grams a day uh, over several, several weeks will work. There's even data showing that HMB combined with resistance training in older men can help promote the loss of body fat. So I think the controversy for HMB arises from a couple papers showing that it promotes these gargantuan gains in, in lean body mass of like 8 to 10 kilos, wow. which is a little nutty. <laughs> I'm like, wow, 8 to 10 kilos, that's a lot of freaking kilos. Um, is it possible? Yeah. Is it probable? No. Um, are there people out there who can gain that kind of lean body mass? Yeah, probably. They're kind of rare. It's sort of like finding the person who could run 100 meters in 10 seconds or less, I mean, you probably would never meet one unless you coach track and field. Um, so I think it's one of those supplements that when used properly, it actually will help you quite a bit. And in fact, there's even data uh, of HMB use in teenagers. In fact, I think it was teenage volleyball players showing that it helped, it helped uh, performance and recovery. Interesting stuff. Now, in terms of another uh, emotionally charged subject these days, which is carbohydrates, um, supplemental carbohydrates, <laughs> how can they help performance and uh, what type of athletes would get the biggest kick? You know, uh, it's funny that it's, it's controversial because oddly enough, I think sports nutrition as a category really started based on carbohydrate research. I mean, you go back to the 1970s. Uh, John Ivey did a lot of this work on, on, on glycogen repletion, you know, uh, with carbohydrate and whatnot. If you look at the vast majority of sports from, and I'll use track and field because I, I can think in distances. So when I know the distance, I can sort of tell you what, what's going on. So if you look at track and field, distances of a mile or 1,500 meters, metric mile, all the way up until, uh, let's say, the marathon, those events... So that's the 1,500, the 3,000, the 5,000, the 10,000, the half marathon, the marathon. Those events are clearly helped by carb intake, particularly carb intake during exercise. Um, and we're finding out that during exercise may be more important than, let's say, pre-exercise. In fact, that's what I do. I compete in stand-up paddling races in Florida. And for long races, I'm sucking down sugar and caffeine throughout the race. It's like sugar, caffeine, sugar, caffeine, give me sugar, caffeine. And my goal, and this is the goal of a lot of athletes, is actually – more to prevent central nervous system fatigue than anything else. Because if my brain is awake, I can kill myself out there. Once my brain shuts down, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to do anything anymore. So a lot of it is to help the central nervous system. So those events, those events that last, you know, it's like the mile up until the marathon, carbohydrate intake is absolutely critical. Now, what about sports where it's start-stop, like uh, American football, soccer, rugby? Carb intake is still essential because still it's going to be a primary fuel source because you're doing multiple sprints. In fact, in soccer... If you'll get collegiate soccer in the United States, these guys and girls are running on average anywhere from 6 to 10 miles a game. And think of that. That's 6 to 10 miles wow. of jog, walk, sprint. Jog, walk, sprint. I mean, not in that order. It could be any random order. But I didn't realize that till I saw a presentation by a buddy of mine from Rutgers, Sean Arndt. And I was like, wow, they're running 6 to 9 miles a game? Holy smokes. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a lot of freaking running. So, so carb intake clearly is important for them, particularly if they're playing multiple games over a weekend and they're carb depleted after a game. They got to eat. And they got to not just eat a lot of carbs. They got to eat a lot of everything just to get those calories back in. Now, I think the controversy with carbs comes from, and this is where it gets, uh, I don't know, semi-annoying, semi-interesting, is um, the people who keep promoting ketogenic diets as the best thing for everybody and that you have to get athletes fat adapted to maximize performance. The problem is 
The problem is this. The data still strongly supports carb intake during those events. No matter how well fat adapted you are, you still got to rely on sugar or carbohydrate because the intensity is so high. If you're exercising like crazy, you have to oxidize carbs. You can't oxidize fat. There's not, you'd have to slow down if you're going to oxidize fat. So um, is there a role for training in a carb-depleted state? Yes. I mean, uh, you have the uh, you know, sleep low, sleep low strategies or train fasted strategies or train carb depleted strategies. I think it's always good if you're a performance athlete to train under a variety of circumstances just because you never know. You might be in that circumstance during a race. So, um, But yeah, the data on carbs is, is pretty robust. I, 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 it's hard to believe there's actually controversy there. Yeah, I mean, definitely on the performance side of things, until people are running at, what, 65% until everybody else falls over, I mean, that's probably the only event that will actually uh, benefit the fat adapted, yeah. right? Just low intensity right. forever. Yeah, the, uh, the, the guys who do ultras, I mean, there's that 100-mile Western States runs. I don't know, do you do, are you an endurance guy? Do you do ultras and things like that? I, I don't do ultras, but I have quite a few clients, and yeah, like you said, they train a lot in these, uh, you know, carbohydrate-depleted states, but once it's go time, once it's performance time, I mean, even the the top athletes, I mean, the carbohydrates are pouring in, just like you mentioned. Yeah, so, so they're fat adapted, but they love their sugar. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, uh, awesome. Well, shifting gears on to, uh, I know one of my favorite topics, and it uh, sounds like one of yours as well. How about caffeine uh, for upgrading performance? Obviously a very well-researched area. How can caffeine help to boost performance for athletes? Caffeine is one of my favorites of all time. In fact, I'm a caffeine addict. I love my caffeine in the morning, my coffee. Um... The data on caffeine is just as robust as the data on creatine. Um, I think, uh, and in fact, if you look at events from endurance events to strength power events, it clearly helps the endurance events. And there's even data to show it might even maybe marginally help the strength power events. But the best part about it is that it keeps your nervous system turned on. I mean, you're, to me, a lot of the fatigue with sports is brain fatigue. You're just tired. You're, you just don't want to do anything. If you keep your brain up, I think that's where caffeine plays a role. Now, in terms of phys the physique stuff, I know a lot of people will train fasted and take caffeine to help oxidize fat. And it might help a little, but ultimately for the physique sports, if you want to call them a sport, I mean, it's just looking pretty, I guess. Is that a sport? Um, you know, so it's, you know, it, if it helps you work out harder and longer, then it'll help you burn more fat or burn more calories. I mean, but ultimately, you know, what you eat or your diet is going to have a bigger effect on body composition or loss of fat than, than exercise, unless you're exercising a hell of a lot. And what are your thoughts on caffeine in the evening for training? A lot of our guys at Canada Basketball, obviously playing in the NBA and other professional sports, all the games are at night, 6, 7, 8, 9 p.m. Um, and these guys regularly dosing in the evening, perhaps bigger doses even of caffeine. Is it a big deal if, they're, you know, if their whole day is kind of shifted and they're going to bed very late, or, or is there some concerns there around the, you know, the amounts or the duration if they're taking you know, high bolus yeah, caffeine. Yeah, that's interesting because of the, you know, schedule of the NBA, uh, even Major League Baseball. Um, and I know because they travel so much, is there a, a regular-ish, is there a regular schedule? Well, it's sort of regular. Um, to me, if you're, if most of your games are in the afternoon or evening, I would imagine practices tend to mimic that, but they actually don't, <laughs> which is kind of odd. I mean, if, uh, you try to mimic the schedule that the actual sport is in. Now, would taking caffeine, to me, the, the paramount issue, will taking caffeine help you perform during the game? And if the answer is yes, you take it. And if the trade-off is sleep might suffer a little bit, well, then hopefully you can just sleep in or take a nap the next day because 
ultimately the most important thing is how it affects you game day or during the game. Um, so, again, I mean, I'm going to go away from uh, the team sports, go to individual sport. Let's say you're training for a fight. If you know, most fights are in the evening. So if you're a boxer, mixed martial artist, like in Las Vegas, these fights are in, at night, actually, so that people can watch it. So I would imagine that when they go to a camp, that they mimic that by training at night because you're going to fight at night. Um, whether they do that or not, it's probably up to each individual coach, but they should be doing that. And then that way, if they're used to training at night, they'll probably end up staying up late and then sleeping in late. And then that way they sort of follow the same pattern so that when the actual fight comes, the body's like, well, this is the normal schedule of my body. So as long as you try to mimic the actual event, I think that's the best thing to do. And is there an ideal dose of caffeine in terms of milligrams per kilogram body weight that, uh, or range? Yeah, I would suggest start low. Uh, try three milligrams per kilo. Um, if that doesn't work, you know, go up to as high as five, five milligrams per kilogram. And for most people, that's it's probably around 300. For most large people, 300 to 400 milligrams, maybe 500 milligrams. For, for small people, that's like 200 milligrams or less. Yeah, and any considerations for metabolizers? If we have slow or fast metabolizers, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. You know, what's interesting is um, the, uh, there was a presentation um, at the ISN, International Society of Sports Nutrition. Uh, Nancy Guest, uh, she's, she, her dissertation is on the gene for um, seeing if you're a fast or slow meta metabolizer of caffeine. I think the gene is it's uh, CYP1A2. and yep. If you are a slow metabolizer, it is entirely possible that caffeine will actually ruin your performance, or at least have no effect, but it could possibly ruin it. Um, and I think people sort of intuitively figure that out when they try it, you know, throughout their adult life. They're like, wow, it doesn't, you know, I've run into a lot of people who are like, wow, it just doesn't do anything for me, so I just don't take it. And, and I always thought that was really odd. I'm like, really? That's just so weird. And then once you see this genetic data, you're like, oh, okay. Well, maybe you are a slow metabolizer. And so in that sense, I think people sort of figure it out before knowing their genetics. Uh, but, it, you know, I would say it's always a good idea to verify it through science. So if you could do that, that'd be awesome. 100%. Yeah, we had Nancy on the show as well, and she would uh, shared some of her data there with the, yeah, the ultra-slow metabolizers. She called them that subset of maybe 10% that actually had that real performance decrement, which is, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of people kind of inherently sort of know that, but it's nice to be able to pick up on some of that. Yeah, well, what would suck, though, is if, if you're a fast metabolizer and you still suck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then you, just, then you just can't drink as much. Um, all right, well, shifting gears to yourself, Joe, obviously an unabashed coffee lover. Can you uh, give the listeners maybe a bit of a snapshot into your morning? You know, what's the coffee routine like? We like to geek out here a little bit about coffee. You know, how oh. much is going in the morning? Are you Americano guy? Drip, what do you do? Hey, I love my coffee. In fact, uh, first thing I walk, I go to my... Uh, it's your typical uh, uh, filter, you know, uh, paper basket filter with, uh, and actually I love Starbucks. I love the dark coffee. Um, and I'll drink two cups of it, and I add milk, and I add, actually, you know what I've been using? I've been using this, these Hershey syrup. It's like this caramel syrup instead of sugar. I pour, I pour a lot of syrup, actually, because I like it sort of sweet. So I pour a lot of syrup in it, and I, I just sit there, and I veg out for about 15 to 20 minutes, staring at the ceiling. Well, not really ceiling. I guess staring at the wall. And then it takes me about that long to wake up, and then I'm ready. I can write. I start writing like crazy. I can write. I do most of my writing between like uh, 5 a.m. and maybe 8 a.m. in the morning, drinking my coffee. Um, and then I go to the ocean, you know, because the ocean is my, my gym. So <laughs> that's my routine. <laughs> that's a pretty nice gym to have for sure. 
Uh, well, listen, Joe, I want to respect your time here. Before we wrap things up, if you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself some advice, what would it be? That's a great question. I think uh, I, the advice I would give myself is um, in terms of schooling, um, I, uh, I wish I had, instead of doing a, uh, a master's degree uh, in exercise phys, because uh, I ended up getting a PhD, I actually would have got a, an MBA or a degree in business. Um, because I think there's a lot of things you can learn by yourself in business, but I don't know if it can completely replace getting formal education in it. And I wish I'd gotten an MBA before my PhD. Um, but other than that, I mean, everything I've done, I've sort of done because it's fun. And if it's not fun, it's just a waste of time. So for people who aren't sure what career they want to sort of venture into, I always say, well, eliminate the stuff that's boring and not fun. And then there's got to be something left. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fantastic. So, that is great advice. Great advice. Well, listen, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Uh, where can people keep up with your work with the ISSN and, of course, uh, you know, pick up some of your fantastic books and stay connected on uh, social media? Cool. Well, uh, I'm easy to find on Facebook. It's under Jose Antonio. Um, Twitter account is under Jose Antonio PhD. And on Instagram, I, I'll post sort of uh, research snippets under the ISSN. It's T-H-E underscore ISSN. And also, I would highly recommend anyone to come to our national meeting, ISSN's national meeting next year, is in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida. It's June 7th to 9th. And if you can't make it there, we are actually on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. We will be in London um, in September for an ISSN London event. So if you can't make it to beautiful Florida, you can always make it to sunny and tropical London. There you go. Fantastic. <laughs> well, hopefully it will be sunny and tropical then. Uh, we'll include all those links in a, a brief podcast summary with the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks a lot for taking the time out, Joe. Uh, thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs using the hashtag DrBubsPP. If you enjoy the show, please take a few minutes, head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating. Thanks, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.